Welcome to the Medical Sales Certification Podcast. This is Colby Wood. And on this podcast, we take a deep dive into medical sales and in particular, orthopedic medical sales, where I do my best to share with you everything that I have learned up to this point and document really the day-to-day sales calls and meetings and interactions I'm having so that you can learn from my experiences and hopefully help you become more successful in your career as well. So without any further ado, please enjoy today's podcast. What's up, everybody? This is Colby Wood with the Medical Sales Certification Podcast, and welcome to this episode. And what we are going to do is another anatomy on the go episode, and we're going to talk ladder J procedure. And so, you know, thus far in the anatomy on the go uh, podcast, we've just been focusing on the shoulder. So I want to um, kind of work work around all the different common procedures that uh, that you're going to see as a medical sales rep in the field because uh, you you really need to, need to be able to talk intelligently about these procedures you know even if you are selling products for a company that doesn't have a ladder j technique per se um, you know there's a there's a handful of companies that are gonna have their own ladder j technique so they've got the instrumentation they've got the implants they've developed the technique guides etc uh, you may be working for a company that doesn't have a ladder j technique per se but I think it's still vitally important to understand what a ladder J procedure is because it's it's the next step in the process of somebody dealing with anterior inferior instability in the shoulder. So, you know, if you sell shoulder anchors and the only thing you know of is anterior inferior repair, a bank art repair, but you don't even understand what a ladder J procedure is, if you're in the middle of a conversation with a doctor and they're asking you these types of questions, you need to be able to speak intelligently about it, even if you don't have the product in your bag necessarily. So um, before I go to that, you know, I feel like I should just record it one time and play it at the start. But um, again, this is the disclaimer of, you know, I am not a physician. I don't pretend to be a physician. I've never treated patients. Um, that is not my responsibility. That's not my job. Uh, this is not advice for what you should do. This is simply, uh, in my estimation, education from a rep standpoint. What do you need to know about these types of procedures to be able to have intelligent conversations with your doctors, with your customers? Um, and that is, that's really the, the extent of it. So don't, uh, don't read much more into it than that. Um, I just feel like I've got to cover my bases there uh, if I'm putting this out into into the podcast space, podcast sphere, um, you know. So anyway, just so we're clear on that. All right, let's talk ladder J. And what I want to start with is kind of understanding what is the progression that gets somebody to a ladder J procedure. Um, the The idea on ladder J procedures and the progression of getting to this point uh, to where a surgeon is going to do this procedure is different based on geography and training, um, and it can vary significantly. My understanding is that in Europe, almost everybody who has an anterior inferior dislocation is going to get a ladder J as their primary option. Now, that may have changed. I may be getting bad data, so take that for what it is. Here in America, what we typically do are soft tissue repairs whenever possible, but um, that's not to say it's across the board, but so if we're talking about the invasiveness 
of the procedures or the, the options. If you've got somebody that tears their anterior inferior labrum, the least invasive technique that we have at this point would be to do an arthroscopic bank art repair of that, uh, of that tear. Now, so it can be, it makes sense that that may be the preferred option. Number one, it's, it would be in theory, assuming there's no other, um, concomitant severe issues such as glenoid bone loss or things like that, it would be the most anatomic repair that we could do because you're just reattaching the soft tissues to that anterior inferior labrum and, uh, and you're not doing anything more severe or altering the native anatomy that much. So from a, from the most anatomic perspective, a, a direct repair of the tissue would be option number one. But if let's say you fail a soft tissue repair, a soft tissue uh, bank art repair, then what you're going to have to look at are more extreme options. Because if you, if you re-tear and you have a, you have a, a revision of, your, of a bank art tear or a bank art repair, there's something going on in your shoulder and it could be just the activity that you're doing. Maybe you're a, you know, a, a contact athlete and you're, you're just going to be more prone to instability because of that. Uh, and putting unique stresses on the shoulder that, you know, that may be the situation, but it also could be that your anatomy is not where it needs to be. And so what we're talking about with, with a ladder J procedure is if you have anterior inferior bone loss of the glenoid, that is essentially the, that's the socket portion of your, of your ball and socket joint of the shoulder. And so if you think about it as like a golf tee and a golf ball, that's more or less what the shoulder joint is. You've got a large humeral head relative to a small and flat or relatively flat glenoid. So you don't have a whole lot of stability of bony stability in the shoulder. And so you're relying on a lot of soft tissue uh, stability in the shoulder. But if you lose some of your bone, if you lose some of your anterior inferior glenoid bone, you're essentially making the golf tee smaller that the humerus is going to sit on, that the ball, that the golf ball is going to sit on. And so if you think about it in that kind of with that perspective, you're not going to be able to lose a whole lot of bone. Let's just use, sorry, let's use the golf tee. You can't lose a whole lot of the golf tee and still get the ball to sit on the, on the golf tee. It's going to fall off all the time, right? So what you've got to do in the shoulder as well is look at how much bone you've lost anteriorly, anterior inferiorly, and determine, do I need to add more width to the glenoid? Do I need to have an increased width of the bony, um, of the bony surface for the humeral head to articulate with? Because if, if I've lost, uh, a significant amount of inferior, anterior inferior bone of the glenoid, even if I'm doing a soft tissue repair, I'm still going to have issues because the bony width of the glenoid is going to matter for stability, just like the soft tissue repair is going to matter. And so they work in tandem. And I don't know what the, I don't know what, if, you know, the bony, uh, width has more of an effect on stability or the soft tissues do it's, it's an interplay between the soft tissues and the bony width. So you have to have a decent sized golf tee for the golf ball to sit on there and not dislocate, not fall off the tee. And so when we're talking about doing a ladder J procedure, the surgeon, at least here in America is looking at, all right, how much anterior inferior bone loss do I have of the glenoid? And I guess, let me back up. What happens when you dislo dislocate the shoulder, typically, if you're, if you're dislocating anterior inferiorly, what happens is the humerus dislocates, it, it, it loses contact with the glenoid, 
and and so it moves anterior and inferior and out of the socket itself and then what happens is it bangs back into the anterior aspect of the glenoid of kind of the glenoid neck and what what that can create on the humeral side is and because the the glenoid bone is a lot more dense than the humeral head you know it's, it's a little bit softer and so what happens is the humeral head if you dislocate and then it kind of bounces back and the humerus bangs into the anterior aspect of the glenoid what happens is you create a hill sacs lesion so a hill sacs lesion is a uh let's let's call it an indentation in the posterior aspect of the humeral head so what happens is the humerus dislocates anterior it loses articulation with the glenoid but then as it kind of retracts and pulls back and tries to get back into its original position articulating with the glenoid what happens is it'll bang into the anterior rim of the glenoid and that banging into the anterior rim, what that, what that does is creates a defect in the posterior aspect of the humeral head. And so that's called a Hillsax lesion. So that's kind of the, that's, I probably should have started with that. That's, that's what happens when you're dislocating. And so what, you're, what you have to assess when you're trying to determine, do I do, a, do I do a bank art repair or do I do a ladder shape procedure? You're looking at a number of factors. One of them is bone loss when the humeral head dislocated and banged back into the glenoid, did it fracture the glenoid? So it could be that I've got an anterior inferior fracture of the glenoid. And what that's called is a bony bank heart. So you've got, you still have bone there and it's, it is likely still attached to the labrum and the capsule, but you you have a fracture line cutting through the anterior inferior aspect of the glenoid. And that's a bony bank heart. And so a bony bank heart, typically what we do or at least what I've seen, I should just, I guess, use my own perspective, the bony bank cart would be the first option if it's available and you still have good tissue and you've got enough bone to be able to do the repair. You would put suture anchors or something like that into, or screws, you would fixate that fracture, the anterior inferior bony fracture, back to where, uh, where it fractured from on the glenoid. And so you could have a bony bank cart like that. But the other thing that could happen is you could fracture and the bone is unusable, right? Like maybe it fractures into a bunch of pieces or maybe you, you're a recurrent instability and you've dislocated a number of times and you just eventually, the, the bone that fractured has been, you know, more or less resorbed by the body. Um, you, you may just be lacking anterior inferior bone. And so what the, the general number that's used or at least my understanding of the general number that's used that's that's still in play today is 25%. So what that means is if you look at the width of the of the glenoid at kind of the inferior so if you look at the glenoid straight on it's kind of a pear shape so it's wider uh, on the bottom than and skinnier on the top. If you were to measure the width of the inferior portion of the glenoid if you have lost 25% of the anterior inferior bone or more, you need to do a ladder shape procedure because you need bone. You need bony width of the glenoid to be able to stabilize the humeral head. It doesn't matter how good of a soft tissue repair you do. If you are losing, if you have lost 25% or more of your anterior inferior bone, you're, you're going to have an unstable shoulder. And if you have less than 25%, then you may be able to get away doing a soft tissue repair. Now, that is not a hard and fast rule. And uh, that maybe has gone way to the wayside. What I would tell you is that, you know, like I said earlier in Europe, my understanding is that they're going to do a ladder J for people that are dislocators 
as their primary option. So they're not even entertaining a soft tissue repair. Now that's probably not totally true. I'm sure I'm sure patients are getting, you know, bank heart, arthroscopic bank heart repairs as a primary option over there, you know, take it for what it's worth. But I'm, I'm just saying that, that doctors are going to have their technique protocol or their, uh, their algorithm for what they're going to do. And that 25% is just a rough number that I think it's, is used as your marker of this definitely should be a ladder because you need to add bone or I can maybe get away with a soft tissue repair. The other things that you're going to take into consideration is what type of activity level is the patient. If they are a contact athlete, so they're playing football or they're playing rugby or they're, they're something like that, chances are you're going to want to err on the side of giving them more stability and maybe you'd go the Latterjay procedure. But if you've got a, you know, a baseball pitcher who needs you know, uh, flexibility and you don't want to alter the anatomy and the biomechanics of the shoulder as much, you may err on the side of doing a soft tissue repair and hoping that takes care of it because you don't necessarily want to do such an invasive procedure on somebody's throwing arm and jeopardize them not being able to get back to their uh, activity level. And so there are, there are indications or contraindications or, you know, a number of variables that you're taking into account here. It's not just a single variable. It's not anterior bone loss is X. And so I'm going to do X procedure. And if it's, you know, below this line, I'm going to do soft tissue above this line. I'm going to do bony, bony repair with a, with a ladder J. It's not that simple. There are a lot of factors that are going to go into it. Um, and so from a rep perspective, you need to understand that that is what, that's what's going to be going through the doctor's mind when he's thinking about a ladder J procedure. It's, you know, what is the activity level of the patient? How much bony loss do they have? What's the quality of their tissue? How, how many times have they dislocated? Um, you know, are they a recurrent dislocator or is this the first time? Um, you know, what is their age level? What is their, you know, at what level are they playing their sport or, you know, activity? What, what are their goals and objectives postoperatively, et cetera? And so there's, there's a number of variables that you're taking into account. What I think is important from a rep perspective is understanding kind of the treatment algorithm that the doctor's going to be working through and being able to talk intelligently about, yeah, maybe you would want to try this or maybe you would want to try that or maybe you should consider this because of X, et cetera. So from that perspective, that's kind of the treatment protocol or, or at least the algorithm that, algorithm that comes into play. Uh, but the other thing that I guess I didn't touch yet is a Hillsax lesion. And I don't want to... Um, I don't want to make this, I don't want to get too far in the weeds on a hillsax lesion. I get, uh, I could do another re, uh, podcast episode on a remplissage. A remplissage is essentially doing a tenodesis of the infraspinatus tendon down into the hillsax lesion. So the hillsax lesion is the posterior, posterior aspect of the humeral head, the defect that occurred because you dislocated anteriorly and then the humeral head banged into the anterior aspect of the glenoid and it created a defect in the uh, in the posterior aspect of the humerus. And the, what can happen there is when you're talking about stability of the shoulder, there are two different things. You've got anterior structures that you can tighten up, right? Like your anterior inferior labrum and capsule, your capsule labral complex down there. And that's going to help with stability of the shoulder. But you can also, if you tighten up the posterior aspect that is attached to the humerus, the tighter you make the posterior aspect, meaning that the tighter that the rotator cuff grabs onto the posterior aspect of the humerus, the less likely it is or the harder it is for the, anti for the humerus to push anteriorly and dislocate. So you've got, they're kind of two sides of the, of the same coin of, um, and, it, and it's not uncommon to do, if you're going to do a soft tissue repair, you're not going to do a ladder J. Well, I'll do a 
anterior inferior bank cart repair, and I'll do a remplissage because I'm going to repair the, the capsular labral complex inferiorly, anterior inferiorly in the shoulder doing a, doing a bank cart repair. So I'm going to stabilize that way. But then I'm also going to do a remplissage on the posterior aspect of the humerus so that I'm going to tighten up the, uh, the posterior aspect of that humerus, the rotator cuff down in there, so that it's going to minimize or limit or, or restrict anterior movement of the humerus relative to the glenoid. And both of those can aid in stability. Now, you might be giving up range of motion. You might be, you know, putting at risk maybe post-operative pain. I know that that my understanding of the literature is that patients that get a remplissage, um, you're going to reduce range of motion a little bit. You, you have somewhat of an increased rate of post-operative pain in the posterior aspect of the shoulder. I don't know that for sure. I don't know that literature as well as some of the other things. It's not not a not that common of a procedure to do, but if you're doing a soft tissue repair to assess instability, it's not uncommon to um, to look at doing not just a not just a bank bank heart repair because if you're thinking about it, why did the patient tear their anterior inferior labrum initially, or why did they dislocate? It's probably because they're an athlete or there's a traumatic situation. So if it's a trauma and they're not an athlete then maybe you're going to be much more willing to tighten them up and you're less concerned about post-operative range of motion. But if they're an athlete, why did they tear? You know, maybe they're an overhand thrower, maybe they're a pitcher, and they tore their bank art. They tore their anterior inferior labrum. Well, if I just do that direct repair again, is anything going to change as far as their mechanics or the stresses that they're putting on the anterior inferior labrum? You know, probably not. If they're just trying to get back to throwing, you're probably rolling the dice that just doing a direct repair of what they tore is going to suffice long-term. It probably won't, but maybe you take that risk knowing that the alternative may be that you tighten them up and then they can't throw harder. But so understand there's, there's not a clear cut way to address this pathology. Um, I'm now realizing I'm getting way off in the weeds on soft tissue repair and I'm, I've hardly talked about, <laughs> talked about ladder J, which was the title of the podcast. So let's, let's, try to get back on course here. Um, essentially, if you are in a situation where you've lost enough anterior inferior bone, what you're going to opt for is a ladder J procedure. That's the more common one that I have seen. That's the only bony procedure that I've done in the shoulder to, to add uh, stability. And so what, what a ladder J procedure is, is you're taking the lateral two centimeters or more of the coracoid process which sits anterior in the shoulder, you're going to cut that off, cut, cut off the coracoid process, and you're going to attach it to the anterior inferior rim of the glenoid. So if you can think in your mind's eye about, you know, a fracture or you've lost bone anterior inferiorly on the glenoid, what you're doing is you're taking this coracoid process and you're going to stick it right where you lost that bone and you're going to reattach it there. Now, the reattachment process is, is essentially taking two metal screws and screwing it into the glenoid. So the screws are going to go through this coracoid process, through the piece of bone, and then into the glenoid neck, and that's going to hold it in place. So that's essentially what you're doing. I'll go into a little bit more detail on the technique just to, to share that with you. Um, so essentially what's happening is you're taking that two-centimeter-plus uh, piece of bone, of the lateral aspect of the coracoid process, and you're just moving it from kind of an extra articular position in the shoulder outside of the joint, outside of the capsule. The coracoid process sits directly anterior to the subscapularis. So the subscapularis tendon runs directly underneath 
the core code process. And so you're going to, you're going to cut it from there and you're going to attach it into the joint. Now I'm going to walk through kind of the, the technique, just, just so you guys have it. There are plenty of ways to, to do this technique. I, I'll share with you what I've done, what I've seen, what I think is most common. Um, if you guys want to learn more or get more specifics on the technique itself, then, you know, feel free to, to look those up online. Um, but essentially what's, What's unique about the core code process is a couple of things. Number one, you've got the conjoined tendon. So the conjoined tendon is the tendon that sits most lateral, kind of on the lateral tip of the core code process. And what the conjoined tendon is, it's, it's where the, the short head of the biceps and the corcobrachialis tendon essentially run together. And those two tendons together are called the conjoined tendon. Okay, and that attaches at the lateral tip of the coracoid process. And the reason that that is important in this procedure is because there's two things that you're going to be able to get from a ladder shape procedure that are going to help with stability of the shoulder postoperatively. Number one is obvious. You're going to add bone, right? You're adding bony width either back or even more than you would have lost previously. Uh, you're adding back bony width to the glenoid, which is going to help with stability. But the other thing is that you're, when you do this procedure, you're keeping the conjoined tendon attached to the coracoid process. And what it's doing is that conjoined tendon is going to, to form what's called the sling effect. And it's going to be a little bit difficult, as usual, to explain this uh, verbally when you're not seeing it in three dimensions. But uh, I'll do my best to, to explain what's happening here. Let me, let me walk through the technique a little bit, and then I'll explain the sling effect, because that is, uh, if not the most important, it would be the second most important aspect of this procedure. Um, and so what you're doing when you're harvesting the uh, lateral two centimeters or, or a little bit more of the coracoid process is you're going to then take that and, and put that on the anterior rim of the glenoid. The problem with that is that the coracoid process sits extra articular. So it sits outside of the shoulder joint. So if I want to, if I harvest the coracoid process and then I want to attach it to the glenoid directly in front of me and, and between me, the coracoid process and the anterior rim of the glenoid is the subscapularis tendon and your capsule. Okay. So, so because the coracoid process sits outside the joint, you've got, if I harvest it, I'm going to be looking directly at the subscapularis tendon and then below directly deep to the subscapularis tendon is going to be the anterior capsular ligaments. And so what you have to do is you have to cut through the subscapularis tendon and through the capsule to get into the joint. And so what you're doing is you're going to mark out or you're going to, you're going to identify kind of the superior and the inferior border of the subscapularis tendon, and you're going to make a longitudinal incision. So if you're, if you're thinking about it, a person standing up and down, you're going to make a horizontal incision in the subscapularis tendon. So you'll probably start in the muscle belly a little bit and then work your way into the actual tendon itself. And then you're going to, you're going to go deeper and then get into the capsule. And you're going to make that longitudinal incision, the horizontal incision through both of those structures. And then you're going to be in the joint. So if you're working kind of from superficial to deep, you're going to cut through the subscapularis, then you're going to cut through the capsular ligaments, and then you're going to be looking at the joint. Then you're going to have access to the glenoid and the humeral head. And so what you're doing with the coracoid process is you're going to make that slit, that cut in the subscapularis and the capsule, and you're going to open up that split. And then now you're going to stick the coracoid process through that split 
in the subscap. And you're going to reattach it to the anterior inferior glenoid rim. And so technique-wise, it can be, um, you know, a technically demanding procedure. Open, it's, you know, I guess I say that, but technically it's probably not that demanding of a procedure, but you have to get it right. Um, either way, you're going to cut, when you cut the coracoid process, you make that slit in the subscap, and then you slide that through the split in the subscap, and then you can reattach it to the glenoid. And so um, a, what happens there is, number one, Obviously, we had talked about this. You add bony width to the glenoid. So from a stability standpoint, I'm increasing the diameter of my golf tee so that the golf ball will sit on it better, right? So if, if I've lost some width of the golf tee, I'm going to add that back and make it wider. So that's going to add stability. But the other thing that, that I had touched on earlier that I'll get into now is the sling effect. And so because I have stuck this core code process through the split in the subscapularis and, and attach it to the anterior inferior glenoid rim, my conjoined tendon is still attached. And so the conjoined tendon is sitting at the inferior part of this coracoid process now that's attached to the glenoid rim. And that conjoined tendon, because it's attached there, is actually coming through and, and coming through the split in the subscap that you just made, the subscap and the, and the capsule. And so if, if I were to you know, reattach the coracoid process and then remove everything, essentially you would see the split in the subscap and the conjoined tendon would be coming through that split. Um, so I hope that kind of visually in your mind's eye makes sense to you. And the reason that that's important is because, because what happens is your most unstable position for anterior inferior dislocation is going to be abduction and external rotation of the shoulder. So if you abduct the shoulder, meaning that you move your arm out to 90 degrees to the side, and then you go into external rotation, that is where you are most vulnerable or most unstable anterior inferiorly. And so obviously that's why, you know, overhand athletes have issues with instability and things like that, because that's where you're most stable. That's where you're putting so much stress on the uh, anterior inferior labrum, etc. That's your most unstable position to be in. But if I have a conjoined tendon that's attached to the anterior rim of the glenoid now, because it's attached to the coracoid process, if, the, if that conjoined tendon now is running through this split in the subscap, but it's still attached at my elbow on the other side, what happens is if I go abduction and external rotation, that conjoined tendon is actually then sitting directly anterior on the humeral head. Now it's sitting outside the subscap at this point because it runs through the split and then it lays on top of the subscap is kind of how it would look or hopefully visually in your mind's eye, you can make sense of that. It's coming through the split anteriorly and then it's going to lay down. And so what happens is if I go up abduction, external rotation, that conjoined tendon is providing tension anteriorly on the humeral head. And so it's not just an issue of maximizing bony width of the glenoid. But I then am adding the, a conjoined tendon, which prior to doing this procedure has no effect on stability of the shoulder, right? Uh, the conjoined tendon is just running up and, and attaching to the coracoid process. It would help with flexion of the humerus, but it's not going to help with instability of the humeral head. Uh, or I should say of the glenohumeral joint because it's sitting extra articular. But now that I've moved it into the joint and I'm attaching it essentially at the inferior aspect of the, glen, of the glenoid, that now, when I move my arm into, into the abduction, abducted external rotation position, that 
conjoined tendon is now sitting and pressing and, and you have tension on the anterior aspect of the humeral head. And so what it's going to do is help minimize the anterior movement of the humerus. And so you're getting the bony width from the, from the coracoid process, which helps with stability, but you're also getting kind of that posterior force created by the conjoined tendon on your humeral head. And so that also helps minimize recurrent instability in the shoulder. And so those really are the two things that the ladder J procedure is doing to help uh, patients that have recurrent instability. And so, um, you know, I could go kind of farther into, into the weeds on it. There, there are obviously things you have to be aware of. Uh, there's more than just the conjoined tendon that, it, that attaches to the coracoid process. You have the coracoclavicular ligaments, you have the coracochromial ligament, and so technique-wise, you, you have to be careful and you have to know what you're doing with the other, the other structures that are attached to the coracoid process. You know, the, the pectoralis minor attaches there or has an attachment point on the coracoid process. So there are, technique-wise, it's not as simple as it would look in pictures, but that is more or less the essence of what you're trying to do. Uh, uh, you know, if I'm the patient, I essentially have recurrent instability. I've probably dislocated multiple times. I have loss of anterior inferior glenoid bone. And so the doctor's looking for how can I add bony width to the shoulder joint, but then also how do I use the soft tissue structures around it to help uh, minimize post-operative laxity or instability. And so that the conjoined tendon plays a significant role in post-operative stability and minimizing uh, recurrent instability in the shoulder. So, uh, yeah, I guess that's probably all I've got for you on this. Well, no, sorry. The other thing to think about, and this, this may be self-explanatory uh, for you, but um, the other thing that's important, obviously, in doing this procedure is the when you put the coracoid process on the anterior inferior glenoid rim, what you've got to do is make sure that it is flush with the articular cartilage. Right? If, if the, if the coracoid process is sitting a little bit lateral, meaning that if I were to run my finger across the glenoid rim and then onto the coracoid process, the coracoid process would be sticking out lateral a millimeter or two, what's going to happen is you're going to create uh, negative arth arthritic changes on the humeral head because you can't be sitting proud in the joint um, or you're obviously going to create um, arthritis issues and cartilage issues on the humeral head because you need a flat surface for the humerus to articulate with. So that's that's one technique considerations. The other is if you medialize it too much, meaning that if I lateralize it too much, it's going to be sticking proud and it's not going to be flush with the the rest of the articulate kind of the curvature of the glenoid. If I if it's medialized too much, that means there's kind of a drop off shelf. And if I were to run my finger across the glenoid and then get to the coracoid process, it would sink in, meaning that, meaning that if, if the humeral head is articulating with it, it's not going to come into contact with that uh, coracoid process. And so the reason that you've got to have it absolutely flush with the rest of the curvature of the glenoid is that if it sits proud, you're going to create arthritic changes that are not good. If it's sitting countersunk, meaning that it's not articulating on there, it's going to resorb because bone needs to be stressed. So if it's not having any pressure put on it because the humerus is not going to articulate with it, you're actually going to get some bony resorption. And so you've got to, from a technique perspective, when you're putting the coracoid process into place on the anterior inferior glenoid rim, 
you've got to make sure that the that the side of the coracoid is sitting flush with the rest of the curvature of the face of the glenoid so so that it's kind of a, a congruent curvature and it's smooth and in the humerus when it articulates and moves from the glenoid and then articulates with the coracoid process it's kind of a smooth transition so hopefully that that helps kind of communicate that part of it as well um i think that's probably it for ladder j i hopefully that gives you kind of an, an, a high level understanding of what what the procedure is why it's effective and why somebody may choose to go that route um, again, the important thing from a rep perspective is uh, being able to speak intelligently about that option. You know, if you are, and I, I mentioned this at the start, but I, I want to reiterate it because I think it's important. Um, you know, I, I've worked for a company that's had a ladder J technique, and I've also worked for a company that has shoulder products but didn't have a ladder J technique. And it's important, regardless of if you don't have the product in your bag itself, to be able to understand the treatment protocols and the algorithms and why a surgeon may want to do a ladder J procedure. It's going to make you sound more intelligent. The doctor's going to value your input a lot more. They're going to want to use your products. In my experience, they're going to want to use your products more often than not if you know what you're talking about and you're going to be an asset for them. So speaking intelligently about ladder J procedure is important regardless of if you have the products to sell or not. And uh, if we're talking or understanding kind of the treatment protocol, you know, here in America, typically, as long as you don't have a significant amount of anterior inferior bone loss, you might want to start with a soft tissue repair first. So they might do a bank art repair or a bank art repair and a remplissage, because if that fails, then you could go to a ladder J versus if I just start as my primary option of doing a ladder J procedure, there aren't really many bailout options after that. You're not going to go from a ladder J to now I'm going to try a bank art. You can't go backward on that. So um, those are kind of the things that the, the doctors are going to be thinking about, uh, when doing this procedure. So anyway, I hope that is helpful and that, um, you can kind of visualize in your mind's eye what the technique is like and what the surgeon is going to be doing. Um, this is probably the more, the most difficult one I've done thus far to try to verbalize what's happening in the procedure. So I would recommend, uh, just typing it into Google, type in ladder day procedure, and you're going to be able to see in there visually what I'm talking about, um, or online on the, uh, on the course that I have. I also have a ladder day talk where I draw it out on a whiteboard, what a, what a ladder day procedure is and looks like. And, and if you, you know, if you're not gathering it from this podcast, then, uh, then find something like that to, to fully understand the procedure. Anyway, thank you guys for listening to this episode. We will see you on the next one. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Medical Sales Certification Podcast. And as you know, we give all of our content and training away for free. So it would really mean a lot to me if you could subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review. And if you thought that this episode in particular was helpful, consider sending it to somebody you know who you think could benefit as well. Thanks again, and we will see you on the next episode. Bye.